Hello, hello, and welcome to season six of Paz de Chipotle. This is episode 71, and I am your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast and subscribe to my newsletter, check this episode's notes on your podcast app. Over the past seasons of the show, we have explored the little and big stories behind dishes and food traditions, individual crops, and traveled far and wide with the culinary regions of Mexico. We took a deep dive into the history of traditional Mexican markets and have taken a close look at specific traditions and celebrations, like Dia de los Muertos, Christmas, Independence Day, and Cinco de Mayo. With that broad vision, I want to start season six with a cross-section view of a particular kind of cultural practice that is hugely significant in many parts of the world, but that in Latin America and Mexico specifically is deeply rooted in the complex aspects of our colonial past and its many consequences that still emerge in many forms in our cultures. And of course, Food also plays a big part of this. And what is this grand practice I'm talking about, you're wondering? Well, it's none other than carnivals. We tend to associate carnivals with good times, great food, tourism, partying, mind-blowing choreographies, vibrant music and spectacular costumes. But peering under that shiny surface we can see a much more complex reality. And today, we will discover the surprising, sometimes strange, uncomfortable, but utterly fascinating cultural history and present of carnivals. We will find out what makes them unique and what has allowed them to continue evolving as life-affirming acts. As part of my public engagement and education work, I often offer lectures, talks and workshops about a wide range of topics related to Mexican culture and food traditions. And since these are mostly private events, I thought it'd be nice to share part of that with all of you here on the show. Part of the research behind this episode stems from a lecture I offered for Microsoft's Latin American cloud marketing team earlier this year. And I really want to give a special mention to Gabriela Olmos-Hill for her kind invitation, warmth and enthusiasm. Thank you, Gabriela. It was a real honor. In my newsletter, which uh, comes out with each episode, I always share reflections about the subjects I cover and often recommend articles, books or websites to allow you to continue exploring a bit more 
on those things. So on the notes of the episode on your podcast app, there is a link to subscribe to my newsletter for free. And it even comes with a little welcome gift in the form of some yummy Mexican recipes. So with that said, fasten your masks, hats and dancing shoes and let's get started. I hope you enjoy this episode. First things first, what exactly is a carnival? From a sociological and anthropological point of view, a carnival is a cultural expression that's intimately connected to the territory where it is celebrated. We can say that they emerge from the worldviews, traditions and history of a specific community. And they use different forms of expressions and representations through stories and reenactments, characters, costumes and regalia. But also, of course, music, dancing and in many cases, rituals and communal feasts. The most important aspect of carnivals, in my opinion, is that they can only exist as a collective expression and they offer many forms of participation for all members of a community that begin way before the actual celebration takes place and they continue creating and strengthening bonds afterwards. Because carnivals don't happen. Carnivals are made. So where and when did carnivals emerge? Well, let me tell you, that is a proper rabbit hole. Because it turns out that they can take many forms and have been around for thousands of years. And we can find examples across many cultures. Let me give you some. The history of carnivals reveals that their existence goes back to the ancient world. For instance, in Egypt, festivals and carnival-like celebrations were often intertwined with rituals of fertility, like those dedicated to the goddess Sekbeth, which was also the goddess associated uh, with Pia, and the sun god Ra. Many centuries later, in Greek and Roman practices, carnivals were part of so-called pagan rituals like Bacchanalia, Luperocales and Saturnalia, which took place in midwinter in the month of December. So really, carnival-like celebrations were far more complex and varied as they seem to be. And while many of them were transformed into religious practices, Lots of them survived this transformation and are still practiced in older ancient glory. In England, for example, there are survivors of these carnival-like traditions in the form of Moorish dancing and the agricultural rituals of wassailing to bless apple orchards. And of course, this is a great chance for me to plug my other podcast, Hungry Books, specifically episode 8, in which I talk about the history of apple orchards in England. So, 
To narrow it down and focus on what really concerns us today, let's take a look at the dual origins that carnivals in Mexico and Latin America have. And one of these two routes will take us all the way to Europe. We find that the first Catholic carnivals ever to exist appeared during the Middle Ages, which was a long period of time that lasted for 1,000 years. Its beginning was marked by the fall of the Roman Empire in the 4th century and ended with the so-called Discovery of the Americas in 1492. And in spite of its remote origin, early religious practices were a reinterpretation already of ancient pagan rites that existed across the continent, in which people performed ritualistic dances and music at special ceremonies that marked the end of winter and the beginning of the agricultural year. The members of primitive Christian communities, who were mostly fervent religious men, came up with creative ideas to convert non-believers into their faith, since very few people seemed charmed by the idea of being lectured and indoctrinated with a gospel, reinterpreting or appropriating, whichever way you want to look at it, already existing rites seemed a much clever idea, one that meant a kind of more gentle transition from one type of faith to another fitting these old celebrations into the Christian calendar and giving them a new meaning. And the most important of these newly repurposed celebrations were those practiced ahead of Easter as a means of marking the remembrance of Christ's passion and resurrection. As you already know, Catholicism did not arrive in the New World until the 16th century, with the arrival of conquistadors, and was a fundamental tool of colonialism. However, it might surprise you to know that carnival-like practices in Latin America had existed for hundreds of years before Europeans ever dreamed of leaving their homelands. In Mexico alone, we have many descriptions in codices and accounts by early colonial historians about the practice of ritualistic annual or seasonal performative dances, which include offers, music, and the use of complex regalia, such as masks and costumes. Many of these practices were part of important ceremonies related to the agricultural calendar and the worship of deities. So what did the cultural and religious colonization mean for the religious cultures that existed not only in Mexico, but also uh, in the rest of Latin America? Well, uh, that's a big question, but it meant that the ancient festivities that existed in this region changed thanks to the work of missionaries that saw in the European tradition of pre-Lent carnivals a great opportunity to incorporate many of such pre-existing rites, practices and celebrations into their religious calendar, just like it happened in medieval Europe. And thus, 
new cultural expressions were born that over time were shared by the native population and Spaniards. And as we will see later, other ethnic groups fought their right to take part in them as millions of African and Asian people that were brought in by the slave trade and immigrants who came from all over the world became part of our diverse society and also needed spaces to express themselves. I really don't think that, you know, back then anyone was aware of the powerful effect that carnivals and other similar expressions would have over time. And while carnivals created new forms of segregation, they were eventually reclaimed to integrate the artistic expressions of the entire population. But I will talk in more detail about that later. A very illustrative example of this hybridization of practices are the Mexican dances known as tigres, tecuanes or tlacololeros, in which the central figure is an ocelot, which is a feline native to the Americas. It is smaller and slimmer than a bobcat. Most traditional dances that are part of carnivals are used as a form of storytelling, and some tell the stories of mythical creatures like the guanes or ocelots, which have inspired many tales. In the early colonial period, many of the tequani or tiger or tlacololero dances were incorporated to the celebration of Christian saints, and that is one of the reasons why they have survived. And I want to play for you a little soundbite of a tequani dance from Tuxpan in the state of Guerrero. Across Mexico, there are hundreds of dances, ceremonies, and traditions linked to carnivals, and they all reflect the voices, stories, and creativity of different cultures that over the centuries became deeply intertwined, which is why it's very hard to come up with a unique definition of what a carnival constitutes of. But let's say that regardless of the specific carnival in question, They all mark an important time for organized disruption and they often allow and encourage transgressions such as cross-dressing, the portrayal of demons, supernatural creatures and even politicians. They provide a chance to have a ritualistic, playful time and enjoyment and, muy importante, they offer a space to deal with historic cultural tensions like colonization, slavery, religious conflicts and other aspects of our history and present issues as well in a safe and cathartic way.
There are three elements that we can identify as key and central to carnivals across the world, which are music, dance and regalia, which indeed create a riot of colors, mesmerizing choreographies and vibrant music reflecting the rich and complex identity of communities, their unique forms of organization and the history that shaped them. As you can tell already, not all carnivals can be the same because they are not based on a cultural template, meaning that their historical permanence and relevance is explained by the ability of people's ingenuity and freedom to adapt and incorporate and change elements of their culture to accommodate their present beliefs, needs and priorities. However, we can distinguish carnivals by the way they are tied into bigger celebrations that determine their purpose. But whichever the case may be, they are incredibly dynamic practices that have enormous cultural flexibility that expresses an order, logic and the worldview of each community. Now, there are four large categories that help us classify carnivals and the main themes will determine the type of dances, music and performance uh, that occurs in them and of course the stories that are told. So first there are carnivals that are tied into religious calendars, specifically the classic pre-Lent celebrations before Easter. Another group are those associated to agricultural cycles such as harvest and planting periods. A third group are the ones that deal with historical events, which usually are related to political history. So wars, invasions and other conflicts are the central theme of dances. And last, those carnivals that stem from ancient ritualistic practices of our indigenous heritage. So with hundreds of native cultures spread in the continent, it is easy to see why carnivals can't be identical. And some of them are still practically unknown to the world as communities practice them in the intimacy of their towns and villages. There is a great example of a historically themed dance that is part of the Huejotzingo Carnival in my home state of Puebla. The name of the dance is Los Suavos, which refers to the Zouave soldiers that fought with the French army during the Battle of Cinco de Mayo in Puebla. The Suave soldiers were part of infantry regiments that served in the French army between 1830 and 1962. And many of these soldiers were actually originally from the colonial French nations in the Maghreb in Africa. So the video from which I extracted a little bit of audio shows this dance performed in the 2019 carnival and it begins with a large contingent of people led by an elderly man dressed in a beautiful navy velvet coat that is embroidered with golden threads and he's representing a French general. Behind him, there's women and a musical band marching all the way to the town's center where they continue dancing with swords and rifles as they are joined by the rest of the community, dancing and sharing shots of alcoholic drinks.
how mind-blowing was that? <laughs> I bet you have never heard of anything similar. Well, indeed, a closer look into the dances alone allows us to see the powerful stories that are told through them, from rituals of passage, such as weddings, to portrayals of legends and religious beliefs and historical reenactments, of course, of battles, wars and invasions. There really are many powerful elements within carnivals that allow people to participate as a community and immerse themselves in the portrayal of stories that help them deal with these life-changing events and go through them together. And that goes to say that carnival-like occasions don't have to be centered around difficult subjects, and neither they have to be massive national events. They don't even have to involve a whole city. In fact, most of them are practiced within the intimacy of local communities or even at barrios or districts. And a magnificent way to illustrate this is to tell you about calendas, which are practiced at many towns and cities in the state of Oaxaca, particularly in the central valleys, but not exclusively. A calenda involves the same elements as a large carnival. There is music, dances, costumes, with the added bonus that there is often monos de calenda, which are large puppets that follow the party and dance with people. Calendas can serve many purposes, such as celebrating the patron saint of the town or the barrio to mark a special occasion. And of course, they are a very popular way to celebrate a newlywed couple by their friends and family and the rest of the community. And together they dance, drink and walk down the streets all the way to the venue where the reception and banquet will be enjoyed. Now, let me play a sound bite for you of a real actual wedding from the streets of Oaxaca. It is fairly clear at this point that carnivals can only exist like I keep going on and on thanks to the creative expression of the people that keep them alive. What it was once an imposition and a symbol of colonialism, it reasonably quickly became embraced and repurposed as a means to express the values, history and identity of cultural minorities. But how did this happen exactly? Well, Let's take a look at how these practices can foster cultural representation with several cases. Now, a common feature across Latin America is a way in which carnivals have been reclaimed by minorities to express cultural pride and tell the stories and legacy of slavery and cultural segregation. 
Oh yes, that very complex, sinister, embarrassing and painful part of our history that specifically in Mexico is seldom a mainstream discussion. During the colonial period, from South America to Mexico, by the hands of Dutch, French and Spanish colonialists, more than 40 million African people were bought and sold into the slave trade, destined to work at newly created plantations of sugarcane, cotton and later on tobacco, cocoa and coffee. And so millions of African people from many different regions of that continent became part of the new colonial territories in the Americas. To put this in context, here are uh, the examples I want to tell you about. In the region known as the Atacama Desert in Chile, the Spanish colonial regime forbade indigenous people in 1774 from joining carnivals for fear of fueling acts of insurrection. Nowadays, however, the San Pedro de Atacama Carnival is a proud tradition in which indigenous and mixed heritage people all participate. At Barranquilla, known as the Golden Gate of Colombia, around the 1880s, the Afro-Caribbean and indigenous population began a counter-cultural movement in which they reclaimed the pre-Lent carnival as a celebration of their African and indigenous origins. And after centuries of being denied the chance to participate or practice their own traditions, they came together and challenged the colonial regime by unleashing their artistic creativity that gave birth to music genres like cumbia, champeta and vallenato. In Tlayacapan, Mexico, sugarcane haciendas were established in the state of Morelos by Spanish landlords in the 1600s. These colonizers not only took the native indigenous people's land, destroyed their cities and in many cases enslaved them, they also forbade them from taking part in carnivals. So by the 1800s, in the run-up of the War of Independence, the mixed race and indigenous people appropriated the Spanish regalia, music and costumes and created masks depicting white-bearded men, sometimes with piercing blue eyes, in a clear effort to challenge and mock the Spanish regime. The name of these characters that also wear beautiful capes and enormous hats is Chinelo. But Chinelos are so much more than carnival characters. They are rooted in the regional identity of the whole state of Morelos. They have inspired statues, songs, murals, crafts, and even <laughs> ice cream flavors, which, by the way, are delicious. All of this because Chinelos became a symbol of cultural resistance that speaks to us and resonates on many and very deep levels still to this day. So, of course, I'm going to play for you a little bit of a classic piece called Chinelo's Jump or El Salto del Chinelo by the world-famous Brígido Santa Maria Band from Tlayacapan, Morelos.
we will return with the show after a short break. Pasta Chipotle is the audible companion of my editorial project, which currently includes Mexican fiestas, Mexican street food, Mexican chocolate, Puebla's great food tour, and Mexican market food. These ebooks contain carefully researched recipes to prepare traditional dishes presented alongside their equally tantalizing cultural history. So to know more about my ebooks and start the making of your own traditions, go to pasdechipotle.com forward slash publications or click the link on this episode's notes. Go to pasdechipotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. Now, I've been giving you a series of important clues that speak of the many possibilities that carnivals create for community and identity building. But I really want to take a closer look into these aspects. So indeed, carnivals, like all communal expressions, can only exist thanks to the tightly knitted relationships that are present in societies. And as such, they provide the means for accessing forms of participation for all individuals in a community. They help strengthen bonds of kinship, encourage cooperation. They increase our sense of belonging. And carnivals really allow us multiple ways to express our cultural heritage and creativity as our bodies become We're like a vehicle for expression when we decorate our skin, hair, wear costumes and accessories that are really an extension of our individuality. And also, they help people identify with specific groups within a community. Dance itself allows us for rich facial and body expressions through rhythm and catams that create a visual and sensory language that speaks to those who take part in these practices, whether they are participants or spectators. And last, they play an important part at generating an economic ecosystem with the participation of musicians, costume makers, food vendors, craft makers, and in recent decades, also the local and regional tourism economy. Now, I have told you a little bit about Latin America's colonial slave trade, which admittedly I have seldom addressed um, with enough detail on the podcast. And I promise I will make an effort to present an episode exploring the culinary and cultural heritage of the many Afro-descendant communities that we have in Mexico. But for now, I want to mention that some of the Mexican states that have Afro-descendant groups are primarily, but not exclusively, uh, Veracruz, Guerrero, Oaxaca and Chiapas. Over the centuries, the hybrid expressions that inherited many aspects from indigenous, Spanish and African cultures gave way to very unique identities whose 
powerful artistic creativity has profoundly enriched the music, dances, cuisine, and many other aspects of life in the regions where they live. The famous carnivals of the Costa Chica between the states of Guerrero and Oaxaca constitute a profoundly significant tradition that really vindicates and honors the so-called three roots of those communities. Music genres like fandango, chilena, son, huapango, and jarabes are some of the hybrid rhythms that came from these three different cultures. And actually, there are many research projects, workshops, and grassroots movements in Mexico that study, document, and teach about the Afro-Mexican cultural legacy. And I wish I could just <laughs> take you all there, but we will have to settle for a musical taste. And this is a beautiful chilena called Somos Afrodescendientes, We Are Afrodescendant, written by César Cárdenas Mayo and interpreted by Alejandra Robles. Y esta chilena va dedicada para toda la costa de Guerrero, de Oaxaca y de Veracruz. Nowadays, we have a lot of debates around the notion of cultural appropriation. And I think there's also been some abuses of the use of this concept that have overshadowed the other side of this practice, which is reappropriation. Let me put this in context. Across Latin America, the effects of cultural colonialism meant that native indigenous people were not only forced to adopt a different language, religion, political system, and a way of life, it also meant that the exemplary punishments for not doing so were meant to really discourage others from even thinking about it. And after the many wars and conflicts of independence, there were still many prevalent power structures that prevented non-white or non-descendants uh, from Europeans to freely express their cultural practices. So I've chosen three cases that I think are good examples of how cultural resistance has continuously resurfaced in our nations and how carnivals have offered a chance for us to reappropriate of our cultural legacy. So let's take a look at the Cuban case.
In Cuba alone, thousands of enslaved people were sent to cotton, tobacco and sugarcane plantations, never to return to their homelands. Slave owners allowed the participation of African and native Taino people at carnivals, so long as they didn't play their instruments, sing their songs, or dance their traditional choreographies. And it wasn't really until, check this out, 1902, when inclusive carnivals were lawfully recognized and promoted as part of Cuba's cultural heritage and tourism attractions. So, yes, there was a financial motivation behind it. And yes, it shamelessly exploited a tradition. But again, for the first time, it really gave the opportunity for people to participate, sing and dance, and reconnect with their history. In fact, many small local carnivals also emerged that had nothing to do with tourism and everything to do with celebrating their mixed heritage identity. And a curious note is that thanks to these carnivals, dances like conga, mambo and cha-cha-cha have become known and loved worldwide. In South America, Bolivia has a very interesting carnival uh, celebrated at the city of Oruro, which was recognized as a masterpiece of oral and intangible heritage by UNESCO because its mere existence is a powerful testimony of how this tradition was reinterpreted to accommodate many expressions. Their dances and costumes tell the stories of indigenous Andean tribes and even the culture of Chinese immigrants that came in the 1800s to work in the mining industry. Honestly, just Google images from Bolivia's Oruro Carnival. You will be blown away. And last but not least, I have to give, of course, a mention to the famous carnival of the coastal city of Rio de Janeiro, which alongside the Carnival of Venice, well, they are the world's most recognized and famous celebrations of this kind. And while today Rio's carnival is a cultural cash cow, generating 1.5 billion US dollars in revenue, the fact that batucada, samba music and other dances and rhythms are known worldwide, it is possible thanks to the cultural resistance of Afro-Brazilian people who refused to have their identity erased and fought to make their traditions a symbol of pride for the whole nation. So, speaking of batucada, this is so much more than a music genre, because in the 1970s it became the voice of a widespread Afro-Brazilian movement to demand the recognition of their culture. This also channeled political activism and religious musical expressions of candomblé. All of this was aimed to address the many historical cultural issues that affected the Afro-descendant population in that country. So, of course, instead of playing a commercial samba or batucada song, I will show you how the original sacred candomblé rhythms and chants sounded like. Candomblé has its roots in religious practices from Angola and the Ketu Nigerian region. The compilation of this music was from a project by Jaime Sodre and Chikarongoma and Carlos Maguri. And I'm pretty sure I mispronounced all of these names. I really don't speak any Portuguese, so sorry. 
But please enjoy this beautiful soundbite. Now to wrap up this episode, here are some final reflections. As you can see, of course there is so much more than glamour and sequin costumes when you scratch the glossy surface of carnivals. And let me be clear, I do not intend really to take away the playful enjoyment that these practices create and the seductive way in which they invite us to join. In fact, there are great projects that have documented the ways in which carnivals have provided Mexican migrant communities in the U.S., specifically Poblano people, the opportunity to introduce their practices not as an act of defiance and confrontation, but as a way to connect the two worlds they navigate. If you want to know more about this, I really, really recommend you to check the Instagram page and website of ethno-historian and photographer Cynthia Santos Briones, who has made incredible portraits of first-generation Mexican-American children who are members of the San Juan Bautista and Las Moras dance groups that perform the traditional Huehue and Tecuani dances from Puebla at festivals, religious celebrations and carnivals in New York. Carnivals are incredibly powerful traditions that have the flexibility to be adapted and transformed to best serve the people that celebrate their cultures through them. And it is thanks to the power of these life-affirming acts that we feel irresistibly drawn to enjoy their vibrancy because they speak the universal language of solidarity, hope, pride and togetherness. I always like to end my lectures with questions that will prompt deeper conversation and reflections. So here you have some of the questions that I prepared when I originally gave this talk. In light of present-day discussions about race, culture and inclusivity, how do you think that traditions such as carnivals help foster intercultural dialogue? Togetherness, identity building and social cohesion are all aspects present in carnivals. Can you think of similar examples of practices that provide the same elements within your own culture? <laughs> For thousands of years and across civilizations, three needs have shaped our social lives and inspired the creation of rituals, myths and celebrations. The need to belong to a group, the need to express our creativity and the need to connect with our spirituality. I wholeheartedly believe that the greatness of a culture is measured by how all people are valued 
And I'm truly grateful that I am able to do this project and share with pride the cultural heritage of Mexico and, at least for today, a little bit of the cultural history of our Latin American community. Thank you for listening. This episode was researched, presented and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. And I want to thank all of you for sticking with me and being patient with the slow pace of the podcast. It really means a lot. If you enjoy this show, please share it with your friends. Check my ebooks, and if you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I always appreciate that because it helps a lot. And that's it from me today, my friends. Until the next time.